Hey there, wisdom seekers. How are you doing today? Welcome to the Brave New World Order podcast. Straight out the dungeons of podcasting, I am Brandon St. One. And I just want to thank you so much, my listeners, for joining me along my journey dissecting this reality. And I wanted to share something with you that I found along the way. It's called the Kybalion. And I'm not going to get too much into everything. I have the whole book here for you to listen to. It is by the Three Initiates. And it came out in 1908. And I just wanted to share this with the world. It is my gift to you, to the universe, to anybody who comes along and finds the Brave New World Order podcast and wants to gain wisdom and knowledge. Here is the Kybalion, and this is going to be the first, actually it's the intro and the first eight chapters, and then I'm going to drop the next nine through 15 chapters right afterwards. I'm doing them back to back. I was thinking about splitting them up in chapters and maybe doing like I've been doing the Emerald Tablets of Thoth and maybe doing some music and stuff, but I thought, you know, what the hell, I'm going to put this out. As one big thing. But then the file is pretty big. And I figured I would just split it up. I'm going to draw them back to back though. So you don't have to wait. You can just listen to the whole damn thing. You don't have to order it off Amazon. You don't have to go searching deep. You can find it right here on the Brave New World Order podcast. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this. So email me. The Brave New World Order podcast at gmail.com You can follow me on Twitter at Brave NWO Podcast. I really love hearing from you, connecting with you, my listeners. So reach out. Let me know what you think about the Kybalion because I love this and I thought I would just read it, the whole thing. Took me a bunch of hours to read it, but I wanted to read it again anyway. So I thought I would just read it out loud. And you know, I got so much more out of it actually by doing it for the podcast. So... I hope you really enjoy it, and if you really like the Brave New World Order podcast and you want to support independent creative minds like me, Brandon St. One, you can click the links in the show notes below and you can help support the Brave New World Order podcast and help it grow and help it reach newer heights. So this is my gift to the world, to the universe. It's the Kybalion. This is the intro and the first eight chapters and then once you're done with that you can read listen to the rest so i'll be dropping that right afterwards so check it out and reach out let me know what you think and share it with anybody that you know because this is wisdom this is knowledge that we can all benefit from and definitely subscribe follow if you like the brave new world order podcast i really appreciate it i really appreciate you being here listening to this. I hope you love it as much as I do. Here it is, The Kybalion, by three initiates. The Kybalion. Introduction. We take great pleasure 
in presenting to the attention of students and investigators of the secret doctrines this little work based upon the world-old hermetic teachings. There has been so little written upon this subject, notwithstanding the countless references to the teachings in the many works upon occultism, that the many earnest searchers after the arcane truths will doubtless welcome the appearance of the present volume. The purpose of this work is not the enunciation of any special philosophy or doctrine, but rather is to give to the students a statement of the truth that will serve to reconcile the many bits of occult knowledge that they may have acquired, but which are apparently opposed to each other and which often serve to discourage and disgust the beginner in the study. Our intent is not to erect a new temple of knowledge, but rather to place in the hands of the student a master key with which he may open the many inner doors in the temple of mystery through the main portals he has already entered. There is no portion of the occult teachings possessed by the world which have been so closely guarded as the fragments of the hermetic teachings, which have come down to us over the tens of centuries which have elapsed since the lifetime of its great founder, Hermes Trismegistus, the scribe of the gods who dwelt in old Egypt in the days when the present race of men was in its infancy, contemporary with Abraham, and, if the legends be true, an instructor of that venerable sage, Hermes was, and is, the great central sun of occultism, whose rays have served to illumine the countless teachings which have been promulgated since his time. All the fundamental and basic teachings embedded in the esoteric teachings of every race may be traced back to Hermes. Even the most ancient teachings of India undoubtedly have their roots in the original Hermetic teachings. From the land of the Ganges, many advanced occultists wandered to the land of Egypt and sat at the feet of the master. From him, they obtained the master key, which explained and reconciled their divergent views, and thus the secret doctrine was firmly established. From other lands also came the learned ones, all of whom regarded Hermes as the master of masters, and his influence was so great that in spite of the many wanderings from the path on the part of the centuries of teachers in these different lands, there may still be found a certain basic resemblance and correspondence which underlies the many and often quite divergent theories entertained and taught by the occultists of these different lands today. The student of comparative religions will be able to perceive the influence of the hermetic teachings in every religion worthy of the name, now known to man, whether it be a dead religion or one in full vigor in our own times. There is always a certain correspondence in spite of the contradictory features and the hermetic teachings act as the great reconciler. The life work of Hermes seems to have been in the direction of planting the great seed truth, which has grown and blossomed in so many strange forms, rather than to establish a school of philosophy which would dominate the world's thought. But, nevertheless, the original truths taught by him 
have been kept intact in their original purity by a few men in each age who, refusing great numbers of half-developed students and followers, followed the hermetic custom and reserved their truth for the few who were ready to comprehend and master it. From lip to ear, the truth has been handed down among the few. There have always been a few initiates in each generation in the various lands of the earth who kept alive the sacred flame of the hermetic teachings, and such have always been willing to use their lamps to relight the lesser lamps of the outside world. When the light of truth grew dim and clouded by reason of neglect, and when the wicks became clogged with foreign matter, there were always a few to tend faithfully the altar of the truth, upon which was kept alight the perpetual lamp of wisdom. These men devoted their lives to the labor of love, which the poet has so well stated in his lines. Oh, let not the flame die out, cherished age after age in its dark cavern, in its holy temples cherished, fed by pure ministers of love. Let not the flame die out. These men have never sought popular approval, nor numbers of followers. They are indifferent to these things, for they know how few there are in each generation who are ready for the truth, who would recognize it if it were presented to them. They reserve the strong meat for men, while others furnish the milk for babies. They reserve their pearls of wisdom for the few elect who recognize their value and who wear them in their crowns, instead of casting them before the materialistic vulgar swine who would trample them in the mud and mix them with their disgusting mental food. But still, these men have never forgotten or overlooked the original teachings of Hermes regarding the passing on of the words of truth to those ready to receive it, which teaching is stated in the Kybalion as follows. Where fall the footsteps of the master, the ears of those ready for his teaching open wide. And again, when the ears of the student are ready to hear, then cometh the lips to fill them with wisdom. But their customary attitude has always been strictly in accordance with other hermetic aphorism. Also in the Kybalion, the lips of wisdom are closed except to the ears of understanding. There are those who have criticized this attitude of the hermeticists and who have claimed that they did not manifest the proper spirit in their policy of seclusion and reticence. But a moment's glance back over the pages of history will show the wisdom of the masters who knew the folly of attempting to teach to the world that which it was neither ready or willing to receive. The hermeticists have never sought to be martyrs and have, instead, sat silently aside with a pitying smile on their closed lips while the heathen raged noisily about them in their customary amusement of putting to death and torture the honest but misguided enthusiasts who imagined that they could force upon a race of barbarians the truth capable of being understood only by the elect who have advanced along the path. And the spirit of persecution has not yet died out in the land. There are certain hermetic teachings which, if publicly promulgated, 
would bring down upon the teachers a great cry of scorn and revilement from the multitude, who would again raise the cry of crucify, crucify. In this little work, we have endeavored to give you an idea of the fundamental teachings of the Kybalion, striving to give you the working principles, leaving you to apply them to yourselves rather than attempting to work out the teaching in detail. If you are a true student, you will be able to work out and apply these principles. If not, then you must develop yourself into one, for otherwise the hermetic teachings will be as words, words, words to you. The Three Initiates The Kybalion Chapter 1 The Hermetic Philosophy The lips of wisdom are closed, except to the ears of understanding. The Kybalion From old Egypt have come the fundamental esoteric and occult teachings which have so strongly influenced the philosophies of all races, nations, and peoples for several thousand years. Egypt, the home of the pyramids and the sphinx, was the birthplace of the hidden wisdom and mystic teachings. From her secret doctrine all nations have borrowed. India, Persia, Chaldea, Medea, China, Japan, Assyria, ancient Greece, and Rome, and other ancient countries partook liberally at the Feast of Knowledge, which the Hierophants and masters of the land of Isis so freely provided for those who came prepared to partake of the great store of mystic and occult lore which the masterminds of that ancient land had gathered together. In ancient Egypt dwelt the great adepts and masters who have never been surpassed and who seldom have been equaled during the centuries that have taken their processional flight since the days of the great Hermes. In Egypt was located the great lodge of lodges of the mystics. At the doors of her temples entered the neophytes, who afterward, as hierophants, adepts, and masters, traveled to the four corners of the earth, carrying with them the precious knowledge which they were ready, anxious, and willing to pass on to those who were ready to receive the same. All students of the occult recognize the debt that they owe to these venerable masters of that ancient land. But among these great masters of ancient Egypt, there once dwelt one of whom masters hailed as the master of masters. This man, if man indeed he was, dwelt in Egypt in the earliest days. He was known as Hermes Trismegistus. He was the father of the occult wisdom, the founder of astrology, the discoverer of alchemy. The details of his life story are lost to history, owing to the lapse of the years, though several of the ancient countries disputed with each other in their claims to the honor of having furnished his birthplace, and this thousands of years ago. The date of his sojourn in Egypt in that his last incarnation on this planet is not now known, but it has been fixed at the early days of the oldest dynasties of Egypt, long before the days of Moses. The best authorities regard him as a contemporary of Abraham, and some of the Jewish traditions go so far as to claim that Abraham acquired a portion of his mystic knowledge from Hermes himself. 
as the years rolled by after his passing from this plane of life, tradition recording that he lived 300 years in the flesh. The Egyptians deified Hermes and made him one of their gods under the name of Thoth. Years after, the people of ancient Greece also made him one of their many gods, calling him Hermes, the god of wisdom. The Egyptians revered his memory for many centuries, yes, tens of centuries, calling him the scribe of the gods and bestowing upon him distinctively his ancient title, Trismegistus, which means the thrice great, the great great, the greatest great, etc. In all the ancient lands, the name of Hermes Trismegistus was revered, the name being synonymous with the fount of wisdom. Even to this day, we use the term hermetic in the sense of secret, sealed so that nothing can escape, and this by reason of the fact that the followers of Hermes always observed the principle of secrecy in their teachings. They did not believe in casting pearls before swine, but rather held to the teaching, milk for babes, meat for strong men, both of which maxims are familiar to readers of the Christian scriptures, but both of which had been used by the Egyptians for centuries before the Christian era. And this policy of careful dissemination of the truth has always categorized the Hermetics. Even unto the present day, the Hermetic teachings are to be found in all lands, among all religions, but never identified with any particular country, nor with any particular religious sect. This because of the warning of the ancient teachers against allowing the secret doctrine to become crystallized into a creed, the wisdom of this caution is apparent to all students of history. The ancient occultism of India and Persia degenerated and was largely lost, owing to the fact that the teachers became priests and so mixed theology with the philosophy, the result being that the occultism of India and Persia has been gradually lost amidst the mass of religious superstitious cults, creeds, and gods. So it was the ancient Greece and Rome so it was the hermetic teachings of the Gnostics and early Christians, which were lost at the time of Constantine, whose iron hand smothered philosophy with the blanket of theology, losing to the Christian church that which was its very essence and spirit, and causing it to grope throughout several centuries before it found the way back to its ancient faith. The indications apparent to all careful observers in this 20th century, being that the church is now struggling to get back to its ancient mystic teachings. But there are always a few faithful souls who kept alive the flame, tending it carefully and not allowing its light to become extinguished. And thanks to these staunch hearts and fearless minds, we have the truth still with us. But it is not found in books to any great extent. It has been passed along from master to student, from initiate to hierophant, from lip to ear. When it was written down at all, its meaning was veiled in terms of alchemy and astrology, so that only those possessing the key could read it aright. This was made necessary in order to avoid the persecutions of the theologians of the Middle Ages, 
who fought the secret doctrine with fire and sword, stake, gibbet, and cross. Even to this day, there will be found but few reliable books on the Hermetic philosophy, although there are countless references to it in many books written on various phases of occultism. And yet, the Hermetic philosophy is the only master key which will open all the doors of the occult teachings. In the early days, there was a compilation of certain basic hermetic doctrines passed on from teacher to student, which was known as the Kybalion, the exact significance and meaning of the term having been lost for several centuries. This teaching, however, is known to many to whom it has descended from mouth to ear, on and on throughout the centuries. Its precepts have never been written down or printed so far as we know. It was merely a collection of maxims, axioms, and precepts, which were non-understandable to outsiders, but which were readily understood by students after the axioms, maxims, and precepts had been explained and exemplified by the hermetic initiates to their neophytes. These teachings really constituted the basic principles of the art of hermetic alchemy, which, contrary to the general belief, dealt in the mastery of mental forces rather than material elements. The transmutation of one kind of mental vibrations into others instead of the changing of one kind of metal into another. The legends of the philosopher's stone, which would turn base metal into gold, was an allegory relating to hermetic philosophy, readily understood by all students of true hermeticism. In this little book, of which this is the first lesson, we invite our students to examine into the hermetic teachings as set forth in the Kybalion, and as explained by ourselves, humble students of the teachings who, while bearing the title of initiates, are still students at the feet of Hermes, the master. We herein give you many of the maxims, axioms, and precepts of the Kybalion, accompanied by the explanations and illustrations which we deem likely to render the teachings more easily comprehended by the modern student, particularly as the original text is purposely veiled in obscure terms. The original maxims, axioms, and precepts of the Kybalion are printed herein in quotation marks. The proper credit being given, our own work is printed in the regular way. In the body of the work, we trust that many students to whom we now offer this little work will derive as much benefit from the study of its pages as have the many who have gone on before, treading the same path to mastery throughout the centuries that have passed since the times of Hermes Trismegistus, the master of masters, the great great. In the words of the Kybalion, where fall the footsteps of the master, the ears of those ready for his teaching open wide. When the ears of the student are ready to hear, then cometh lips to fill them with wisdom. So that, according to the teachings, the passage of this book to those ready for the instruction will attract the attention of such as are prepared to receive the teaching. And likewise, when the pupil is ready to receive the truth, then will this little book come to him or her.
Such is the law, the hermetic principle of cause and effect. In its aspect of the law of attraction will bring lips and ear together, pupil and book in company. So mote it be. The Kybalion, Chapter 2, The Seven Hermetic Principles. The principles of truth are seven. He who knows these, understandingly, possesses the magic key before whose touch all the doors of the temple fly open. The seven hermetic principles upon which the entire hermetic philosophy is based are as follows. 1. The principle of mentalism. 2. The principle of correspondence. 3. The principle of vibration. 4. The principle of polarity. 5. The principle of rhythm. 6. The principle of cause and effect. 7. The principle of gender. These seven principles will be discussed and explained as we proceed with these lessons. A short explanation of each, however, may as well be given at this point. 1. The principle of mentalism. The all is mind. The universe is mental. This principle embodies the truth that all is mind. It explains the all, which is the substantial reality underlying all the outward manifestations and appearances which we know under the terms of the material universe, the phenomena of life, matter, energy, and in short, all that is apparent to our material senses is spirit, which in itself is unknowable and undefinable, but which may be considered and thought of as a universal, infinite, living mind. It also explains that all the phenomenal world or universe is simply a mental creation of the all, subject to the laws of created things, and that the universe as a whole and in its parts or units has its existence in the mind of the all, in which mind we live and move and have our being. This principle, by establishing the mental nature of the universe, easily explains all of the varied mental and psychic phenomena that occupy such a large portion of the public attention, and which, without such explanation, are non-understandable and defy scientific treatment. An understanding of this great hermetic principle of mentalism enables the individual to readily grasp the laws of the mental universe and to apply the same to his well-being and advancement. The hermetic student is enabled to apply intelligently the great mental laws instead of using them in a haphazard manner. With the master key in his possession, the student may unlock the many doors of the mental and psychic temple of knowledge and enter the same freely and intelligently. This principle explains the true nature of energy, power, and matter, and why and how all these are subordinate to the mastery of mind. One of the old hermetic masters wrote long ages ago, He who grasps the truth of the mental nature of the universe is well advanced on the path to mastery. And these words 
are as true today as at the time they were first written. Without this master key, mastery is impossible, and the student knocks in vain at the many doors of the temple. Number two, the principle of correspondence. As above, so below. As below, so above. This principle embodies the truth that there is always a correspondence between the laws and phenomena of the various planes of being and life. The old hermetic axiom ran in these words, as above, so below, as below, so above, and the grasping of this principle gives one the means of solving many a dark paradox and hidden secret of nature. There are planes beyond our knowing, but when we apply the principle of correspondence to them, we are able to understand much that would otherwise be unknowable to us. This principle is of universal application and manifestation on the various planes of the material, mental, and spiritual universe. It is a universal law. The ancient hermetists considered this principle as one of the most important mental instruments by which man was able to pry aside the obstacles which hid from view the unknown. Its use even tore aside the veil of Isis to the extent that a glimpse of the face of the goddess might be caught. Just as a knowledge of the principles of geometry enables man to measure distant suns and their movements while seated in his observatory, so a knowledge of the principle of correspondence enables man to reason intelligently from the known to the unknown. Studying the monad, he understands the archangel. Number three, the principle of vibration. Nothing rests. Everything moves. Everything vibrates. This principle embodies the truth that everything is in motion. Everything vibrates. Nothing is at rest. Facts, which modern science endorses, and which each new scientific discovery tends to verify, and yet this hermetic principle was enunciated thousands of years ago by the masters of ancient Egypt. This principle explains that the differences between different manifestations of matter, energy, mind, and even spirit result largely from varying rates of vibration, from the all, which is pure spirit, down to the grossest form of matter, all is in vibration. The higher the vibration, the higher the position in the scale. The vibration of spirit is at such an infinite rate of intensity and rapidity that it is practically at rest, just as a rapidly moving will seems to be motionless. And at the other end of the scale, there are gross forms of matter whose vibrations are so low as to seem at rest. Between these poles, there are millions upon millions of varying degrees of vibration. From corpuscle and electron, atom and molecule, to worlds and universes, everything is in vibratory motion. This is also true on the planes of energy and force which are but varying degrees of vibration, and also on the mental planes, whose states depend on vibrations, and even on to the spiritual planes. An understanding of this principle 
with the appropriate formulas enables hermetic students to control their own mental vibrations as well as those of others. The masters also apply this principle to the conquering of natural phenomena in various ways. He who understands the principle of vibration has grasped the scepter of power, says one of the old writers. Number four, the principle of polarity. Everything is dual. Everything has poles. Everything has its pair of opposites. Like and unlike are the same. Opposites are identical in nature, but different in degree. Extremes meet. All truths are but half-truths. All paradoxes may be reconciled. This principle embodies the truth that everything is dual. Everything has two poles. Everything has its pair of opposites, all of which were old hermetic axioms. It explains the old paradoxes that have perplexed so many, which have been stated as follows. Thesis and antithesis are identical in nature, but different in degree. Opposites are the same, differing only in degree. The pairs of opposites may be reconciled. Extremes meet. Everything is and isn't at the same time. All truths are but half-truths. Every truth is half-false. There are two sides to everything. It explains that in everything there are two poles or opposite aspects and that opposites are really only the two extremes of the same thing with many varying degrees between them. To illustrate, heat and cold, although opposites, are really the same thing, the differences consisting merely of degrees of the same thing. Look at your thermometer and see if you can discover where heat terminates and cold begins. There is no such thing as absolute heat or absolute cold. The two terms, heat and cold, simply indicate varying degrees of the same thing, and that same thing which manifests as heat and cold is merely a form, variety, and rate of vibration. So heat and cold are simply the two poles of that which we call heat, and the phenomena attendant thereupon are manifestations of the principle of polarity. The same principle manifests in the case of light and darkness, which are the same thing. The difference consisting of varying degrees between the two poles of the phenomena. Where does darkness leave off and light begin? What is the difference between large and small, between hard and soft, between black and white, between sharp and dull, between noise and quiet, between high and low, between positive and negative. The principle of polarity explains these paradoxes and no other principle can supersede it. The same principle operates on the mental plane. Let us take a radical and extreme example that of love and hate, two mental states apparently totally different and yet there are degrees of hate and degrees of love and a middle point in which we use the terms like or dislike. 
which shade into each other so gradually that sometimes we are at a loss to know whether we like or dislike or neither, and all are simply degrees of the same thing, as you will see, if you will but think a moment, and more than this, and considered of more importance by the Hermetists, it is possible to change the vibrations of hate to the vibrations of love in one's own mind and in the minds of others. Many of you who read these lines have had personal experiences of the involuntary rapid transition from love to hate and the reverse in your own case and that of others, and you will therefore realize the possibility of this being accomplished by the use of the will, by means of the hermetic formulas. Good and evil are but the poles of the same thing, and the hermetist understands the art of transmuting evil into good by means of an application of the principle of polarity. In short, the art of polarization becomes a phase of mental alchemy known and practiced by the ancient and modern hermetic masters. An understanding of the principle will enable one to change his own polarity as well as that of others if he will devote the time and study necessary to master the art. Number 5. The Principle of Rhythm Everything flows out and in. Everything has its tides. All things rise and fall. The pendulum swing manifests in everything. The measure of the swing to the right is the measure of the swing to the left. Rhythm compensates. This principle embodies the truth that in everything there is manifested a measured motion to and fro, a flow and inflow, a swing backward and forward, a pendulum-like movement, a tide-like ebb and flow, a high tide and low tide, between the two poles which exist in accordance with the principle of polarity described a moment ago. There is always an action and a reaction, an advance and a retreat, a rising and a sinking. This is in the affairs of the universe, suns, worlds, men, animals, mind, energy, and matter. This law is manifest in the creation and destruction of worlds, in the rise and fall of nations, in the life of all things and finally, in the mental states of man. And it is with this latter that the Hermetists find the understanding of the principle most important. The Hermetists have grasped this principle, finding its universal application, and have also discovered certain means to overcome its effects in themselves by the use of the appropriate formulas and methods. They apply the mental law of neutralization, they cannot annul the principle or cause it to seize its operation, but they have learned how to escape its effects upon themselves to a certain degree, depending upon the mastery of the principle. They have learned how to use it instead of being used by it. In this and similar methods consist the art of the Hermetists. The master of the Hermetics polarizes himself at the point at which he desires to rest, and then neutralizes the rhythmic swing of the pendulum, 
which would tend to carry him to the other pole, all individuals who have attained any degree of self-mastery do this to a certain degree, more or less unconsciously, but the master does this consciously, and by the use of his will, it attains a degree of poise and mental firmness, almost impossible of belief on the part of the masses who are swung backward and forward like a pendulum. This principle and that of polarity have been closely studied by the Hermetists, and the methods of counteracting, neutralizing, and using them form an important part of the hermetic mental alchemy. Number 6. The Principle of Cause and Effect Every cause has its effect. Every effect has its cause. Everything happens according to law. Chance is but a name for law not recognized. There are many planes of causation, but nothing escapes the law. This principle embodies the fact that there is a cause for every effect, an effect for every cause. It explains that everything happens according to law, that nothing ever merely happens, that there is no such thing as chance, that while there are various planes of cause and effect, the higher dominating the lower planes, still nothing ever entirely escapes the law. The Hermetists understand the art and methods of rising above the ordinary plane of cause and effect to a certain degree and by mentally rising to a higher plane they become causers instead of effects the masses of people are carried along obedient to environment the wills and desires of others stronger than themselves heredity suggestion and other outward causes moving them about like pawns on the chessboard of life but the masters rising to the plane above dominate their moods, characters, qualities, and powers, as well as the environment surrounding them, and become movers instead of pawns. They help to play the game of life, instead of being played and moved about by other wills and environment. They use the principle instead of being its tools. The masters obey the causation of the higher planes, but they help to rule on their own plane. In this statement, there is considered a wealth of hermetic knowledge. Let him read who can. Number 7. The Principle of Gender Gender is in everything. Everything has its masculine and feminine principles. Gender manifests on all planes. This principle embodies the truth that there is gender manifested in everything the masculine and feminine principles ever at work. This is true not only of the physical plane, but of the mental and even the spiritual planes. On the physical plane, the principle manifests as sex. On the higher planes, it takes higher forms. But the principle is ever the same. No creation, physical, mental, or spiritual, is possible without this principle. An understanding of its laws will throw light on many a subject that has perplexed the minds of men. The principle of gender works ever in the direction of generation, regeneration, and creation. Everything and every person contains the two elements or principles of this great principle within it, him or her. 
Every male thing has the female element also. Every female contains also the male principle. If you would understand the philosophy of mental and spiritual creation, generation, and regeneration, you must understand and study this hermetic principle. It contains the solution of many mysteries of life. We caution you that this principle has no reference to the many base, pernicious, and degrading lustful theories, teachings, and practices which are taught under fanciful titles in which are prostitution of the great natural principle of gender. Such base revivals of the ancient infamous forms of phallicism tend to ruin mind, body, and soul, and the hermetic philosophy has ever sounded the warning note against these degraded teachings, which tend towards lust, licentiousness, and perversion of nature's principles. If you seek such teachings, you must go elsewhere for them. Hermeticism contains nothing for you along these lines. To the pure, all things are pure. To the base, all things are base. The Kybalion, Chapter 3, Mental Transmutation Mind, as well as metals and elements, may be transmuted from state to state, degree to degree, condition to condition, pole to pole vibration to vibration. True hermetic transmutation is a mental art. As we have stated, the hermetists were the original alchemists, astrologers, and psychologists. Hermes having been the founder of these schools of thought, from astrology has grown modern astronomy, from alchemy has grown modern chemistry, from the mystic psychology has grown the modern psychology of the schools. But it must not be supposed that the ancients were ignorant of that which the modern schools supposed to be their exclusive and special property. The records engraved on the stones of ancient Egypt show conclusively that the ancients had a full comprehensive knowledge of astronomy, the very building of the pyramids showing the connection between their design and the study of astronomical science. Nor were they ignorant of chemistry, for the fragments of the ancient writings show that they were acquainted with the chemical properties of things. In fact, the ancient theories regarding physics are being slowly verified by the latest discoveries of modern science, notably those relating to the constitution of matter. Nor must it be supposed that they were ignorant of the so-called modern discoveries in psychology. On the contrary, the Egyptians were especially skilled in the science of psychology, particularly in the branches that the modern schools ignore, but which, nevertheless, are being uncovered under the name of psychic science, which is perplexing the psychologists of today and making them reluctantly admit that there may be something in it after all. The truth is that beneath the material chemistry, Astronomy and psychology, that is, the psychology in its phase of brain action. The ancients possessed a knowledge of transcendental astronomy called astrology, of transcendental chemistry called alchemy, of transcendental psychology called mystic psychology. They possessed the inner knowledge as well as the outer knowledge. 
the latter alone being possessed by modern scientists. Among the many secret branches of knowledge possessed by the hermeticists was that as known as mental transmutation, which forms the subject matter of this lesson. Transmutation is a term usually employed to designate the ancient art of the transmutation of metals, particularly of the base metals into gold. The word transmute means to change from one nature, form, or substance into another, to transform. And accordingly, mental transmutation means the art of changing and transforming mental states, forms, and conditions into others. So you may see that mental transmutation is the art of mental chemistry, if you like the term, a form of practical mystic psychology. But this means far more than appears on the surface. Transmutation, alchemy, or chemistry on the mental plane is important enough in its effects, to be sure. And if the art stopped there, it would be one of the most important branches of study known to man. But this is only the beginning. Let us see why. The first of the seven hermetic principles is the principle of mentalism, the axiom of which is the all is mind, the universe is mental, which means that the underlying reality of the universe is mind, and the universe itself is mental, that is, existing in the mind of the all. We shall consider this principle in succeeding lessons, but let us see the effect of the principle if it be assumed to be true. If the universal is mental in its nature, then mental transmutation must be the art of changing the conditions of the universe along the lines of matter, force, and mind. So you see, therefore, that mental transmutation is really the magic of which the ancient writers had so much to say in their mystical works, and about which they gave so few practical instructions. If all be mental, then the art which enables one to transmute mental conditions must render the master the controller of material conditions as well as those ordinarily called mental. As a matter of fact, none but advanced mental alchemists have been able to attain the degree of power necessary to control the grosser physical conditions such as the control of the elements of nature, the production or cessation of tempests, the production and cessation of earthquakes and other great physical phenomena. But that such men have existed and do exist today is a matter of earnest belief to all advanced occultists of all schools that the masters exist and have these powers. The best teachers assure their students having had experiences which justify them in such belief and statements. These masters do not make public exhibitions of their powers, but seek seclusion from the crowds of men in order to better work their way along the path of attainment. We mention their existence at this point merely to call your attention to the fact that their power is entirely mental and operates along the lines of the higher mental transmutation under the hermetic principle of mentalism. The universe is mental. But the students and hermetists of lesser degree than masters 
the initiates and teachers are able to freely work along the mental plane in mental transmutation. In fact, all that we call psychic phenomena, mental influence, mental science, new thought phenomena, etc. operates along the same general lines, for there is but one principle involved, no matter by what name the phenomena be called. The student and practitioner of mental transmutation works among the mental plane, transmuting mental conditions, states, etc. into others according to various formulas, more or less efficacious. The various treatments, affirmations, denials, etc. of the schools of mental science are but formulas, often quite imperfect and unscientific, of the hermetic art. The majority of modern practitioners are quite ignorant compared to the ancient masters, for they lack the fundamental knowledge upon which the work is based. Not only may the mental states, etc., of oneself be changed or transmuted by hermetic methods, but also the states of others may be, and are, constantly transmuted in the same way, usually unconsciously, but often consciously, by some understanding the laws and principles, in cases where the people affected are not informed of the principles of self-protection. And more than this, as many students and practitioners of modern mental science know, every material condition depending upon the minds of other people may be changed or transmuted in accordance with the earnest desire, will, and treatments of person desiring change conditions of life. The public are so generally informed regarding these things at present that we do not deem it necessary to mention the same at length. Our purpose at this point being merely to show the hermetic principle and art underlying all of these various forms of practice, good and evil, for the force can be used in opposite directions according to the hermetic principles of polarity. In this little book, we shall state the basic principles of mental transmutation that all who read may grasp the underlying principles and thus possess the master key that will unlock the many doors of the principle of polarity. We shall now proceed to a consideration of the first of the Hermetic Seven Principles, the principle of mentalism, in which is explained the truth that the all is mind, the universe is mental, in the words of the Kybalion, we ask the close attention and careful study of this great principle on the part of our students, for it is really the basic principle of the whole hermetic philosophy and of the hermetic art of mental transmutation. The Kybalion, Chapter 4, The All, Under and Back of, The Universe of Time, Space and Change is ever to be found the substantial reality, the fundamental truth. Substance means that which underlies all outward manifestations, the essence, the essential reality, the thing in itself, etc. Substantial means actually existing, being the essential element, being real, etc. Reality means the state of being real, true, enduring, valid, fixed, permanent, actual, etc. Under and behind all outward appearances or manifestations, 
there must always be a substantial reality. This is the law. Man, considering the universe, of which he is a unit, sees nothing but change in matter, forces, and mental states. He sees that nothing really is, but that everything is becoming and changing. Nothing stands still. Everything is being born, growing, dying. The very instant a thing reaches its height, it begins to decline. The law of rhythm is in constant operation. There is no reality, enduring quality, fixity, or substantiality in anything. Nothing is permanent but change. He sees all things evolving from other things and resolving into other things. A constant action and reaction, inflow and outflow, building up and tearing down, creation and destruction, birth, growth, and death. Nothing endures but change. And if he be a thinking man, he realizes that all of these changing things must be outward appearances or manifestations of some underlying power, subsubstantial reality. All thinkers in all lands and in all times have assumed the necessity for postulating the existence of this substantial reality. All philosophies worthy of the name have been based upon this thought. Men have given this substantial reality many names. Some have called it by the term of deity under many titles. Others have called it the infinite and eternal energy. Others have tried to call it matter, but all have acknowledged its existence. It is self-evident. It needs no argument. In these lessons, we have followed the example of some of the world's greatest thinkers, both ancient and modern, the hermetic masters, and have called this underlying power, this substantial reality, by the hermetic name of the all. Which term we consider the most comprehensive of the many terms applied by man to that which transcends names and terms. We accept and teach the view of the great hermetic thinkers of all times, as well as of those illumined souls who have reached higher planes of being, both of whom assert that the inner nature of the all is unknowable. This must be so, for not by the all itself can comprehend its own nature and being. The hermetists believe and teach that the all in itself is and must ever be unknowable. They regard all the theories, guesses, and speculations of the theologians and metaphysicians regarding the inner nature of the all as but the childish efforts of mortal minds to grasp the secret of the infinite. Such efforts have always failed and will always fail from the very nature of the task. One pursuing such inquiries travels around and around in the labyrinth of thought until he is lost to all sane reasoning, action, or conduct and is utterly unfitted for the work of life. He is like the squirrel which frantically runs around and around the circling treadmill wheel of his cage, traveling ever and yet reaching nowhere at the end a prisoner still, and standing just where he started. And still more presumptuous are those who attempt to ascribe to the all the personality, qualities, 
properties, characteristics, and attributes of themselves, ascribing to the all the human emotions, feelings, and characteristics, even down to the pettiest qualities of mankind, such as jealousy, susceptibility to flattery and praise, desire for offerings and worship, and all the other survivals from the days of the childhood of the race. Such ideas are not worthy of grown men and women and are rapidly being discarded. At this point, it may be proper for me to state that we may make a distinction between religion and theology, between philosophy and metaphysics. Religion, to us, means that intuitional realization of the existence of the all and one's relationship to it, while theology means the attempts of men to ascribe personality, qualities, and characteristics to it. Their theories regarding its affairs, will, desires, plans, and designs, and their assumption of the office of middlemen between the all and the people. Philosophy, to us, means the inquiry after knowledge of things knowable and thinkable, while metaphysics means the attempt to carry the inquiry over and beyond the boundaries and into regions unknowable and unthinkable, and with the same tendency as that of theology. And consequently, both religion and philosophy mean to us things having roots in reality, while theology and metaphysics seem like broken reeds, rooted in the quicksands of ignorance, and affording naught but the most insecure support for the mind or soul of man. We do not insist upon our students accepting these definitions. We mention them merely to show our position. At any rate, you shall hear very little about theology and metaphysics in these lessons. But while the essential nature of the all is unknowable, there are certain truths connected with its existence which the human mind finds itself compelled to accept, and an examination of these reports form a proper subject of inquiry, particularly as they agree with the reports of the Illumined on higher planes. And to this inquiry, we now invite you, that which is the fundamental truth, the substantial reality, is beyond true naming, but the wise men call it the all. In its essence, the all is unknowable, but the report of reason must be hospitably received and treated with respect. The human reason, whose reports we must accept so long as we think at all, informs us as follows regarding the all, and that without attempting to remove the veil of the unknowable. 1. The all must be all that really is. There can be nothing existing outside of the all, else the all would not be the all. 2. The all must be infinite, for there is nothing else to define, confine, bound, limit, or restrict the all. It must be infinite in time or eternal. It must have always continuously existed, for there is nothing else to have ever created it, and something can never evolve from nothing. And if it had ever not been, even for a moment, it would not be now. It must continuously exist forever, for there is nothing to destroy it, and it can never not be, even for a moment, because something can never become nothing. It must be infinite 
in space. It must be everywhere, for there is no place outside of the all. It cannot be otherwise than continuous in space, without break, cessation, separation, or interruption, for there is nothing to break, separate, or interrupt its continuity, and nothing with which will fill in the gaps. It must be infinite in power or absolute, for there is nothing to limit, restrict, restrain, confine, disturb, or condition it. It is subject to no other power, for there is no other power. 3. The all must be immutable, or not subject to change in its real nature, for there is nothing to work changes upon it, nothing into which it could change, nor from which it could have changed. It cannot be added to, nor subtracted from, increased, nor diminished, nor become greater or lesser in any respect whatsoever. It must have always been, and must always remain, just what it is now, the all. There has never been, is not now, and never will be, anything else into which it can change. The all being infinite, absolute, eternal, and unchangeable, it must follow that anything finite, changeable, fleeting, and conditioned cannot be the all. And as there is nothing outside of the all in reality, then any and all such finite things must be as nothing in reality. Now do not become befogged, nor frightened. We are not trying to lead you into the Christian science field under cover of hermetic philosophy. There is a reconciliation of this apparently contradictory state of affairs. Be patient. We will reach it in time. We see around us that which is called matter, which forms the physical foundation for all forms. Is the all merely matter? Not at all. Matter cannot manifest life or mind. And as life and mind are manifested in the universe, the all cannot be matter for nothing rises higher than its own source. Nothing is ever manifested in an effect that is not in the cause. Nothing is evolved as a consequent that is not involved as an antecedent. And then modern science informs us that there really is no such thing as matter, that what we call matter is merely interrupted energy or force, that is, energy or force at a low rate of vibration. As a recent writer has said, matter has melted into mystery. Even material science has abandoned the theory of matter and now rests on the basis of energy. Then, is the all mere energy or force? Not energy or force as the materialists use in the terms, for their energy and force are blind, mechanical things, devoid of life or mind. Life and mind can never evolve from blind energy or force, for the reason given a moment ago. Nothing can rise higher than its source. Nothing is evolved unless it is involved. Nothing manifests in the effect unless it is in the cause. And so the all cannot be mere energy or force, for if it were, then there would be no such things as life and mind in existence. And we know better than that, for we are alive and using mind to consider this very question. And so are those who claim that energy or force is everything. What is there then higher than matter or energy? 
that we know to be existent in the universe. Life and mind. Life and mind in all their varying degrees of unfoldment. Then you ask, do you mean to tell us that the all is life and mind? Yes and no is our answer. If you mean life and mind as we poor petty mortals know them, we say no, the all is not that. But what kind of life and mind do you mean, you ask? The answer is living mind, as far above that which mortals know by those words, as life and mind are higher than mechanical forces or matter. Infinite living mind as compared to finite life and mind. We mean that which the illumined souls mean when they reverently pronounce the word spirit. The all is infinite living mind. The illumined call it spirit. The Kybalion, Chapter 5, The Mental Universe. The universe is mental, held in the mind of the all. The all is spirit. But what is spirit? This question cannot be answered for the reason that its definition is practically that of the all, which cannot be explained or defined. Spirit is simply a name that men give to the highest conception of infinite living mind. It means the real essence. It means living mind, as much superior to life and mind as we know them, as the latter are superior to mechanical energy and matter. Spirit transcends our understanding, and we use the term merely that we may think or speak of the all for the purposes of thought and understanding we are justified in thinking of spirit as infinite living mind, at the same time acknowledging that we cannot fully understand it. We must either do this or stop thinking of the matter at all. Let us now proceed to a consideration of the nature of the universe as a whole and in its parts. What is the universe? We have seen that there can be nothing outside of the all. Then, is the universe the all? No, this cannot be, because the universe seems to be made up of many, and is constantly changing, and in other ways it does not measure up to the ideas that we are compelled to accept regarding the all, as stated in our last lesson. Then, if the universe be not the all, then it must be nothing. Such is the inevitable conclusion of the mind at first thought. But this will not satisfy the question, for we are sensible of the existence of the universe. Then, if the universe is neither the all nor nothing, what can it be? Let us examine this question. If the universe exists at all, or seems to exist, it must proceed in some way from the all. It must be a creation of the all, but as something can never come from nothing, from what could the all have created it? Some philosophers have answered this question by saying that the all created the universe from itself, that is, from the being and substance of the all. But this will not do, for the all cannot be subtracted from, nor divided, as we have seen. And then again, if this be so, would not each particle in the universe be aware of its being the all? The all could not lose its knowledge of itself, nor actually become an atom or blind force, 
or lowly living thing. Some men, indeed, realizing that the all is indeed all, and also recognizing that they, the men, existed, have jumped to the conclusion that they and the all were identical, and they have filled the air with shouts of I am God, to the amusement of the multitude and the sorrow of sages. The claim of the corpsicle that I am man would be modest in comparison. But what indeed is the universe if it not be the all, not yet created by the all, having separated itself into fragments? What else can it be? Of what else can it be made? This is the great question. Let us examine it carefully. We find here that the principle of correspondence from Lesson 1 comes to our aid here. The old hermetic axiom, as above, so below, may be pressed into service at this point. Let us endeavor to get a glimpse of the workings on higher planes by examining those on our own. The principle of correspondence must apply to this as well as to other problems. Let us see, on his own plane of being, how does man create? Well, first, he may create by making something out of outside materials. But this will not do, for there are no materials outside of the all with which it may create. Well, then, secondly, man procreates or reproduces his kind by the process of begetting, which is self-multiplication accomplished by transferring a portion of his substance to his offspring. But this will not do, because the all cannot transfer or subtract a portion of itself, nor can it reproduce or multiply itself. In the first place, there would be a taking away, and in the second case, a multiplication or addition to the all, both thoughts being an absurdity. Is there no third way in which man creates? Yes, there is. He creates mentally, and in so doing, he uses no outside materials, nor does he reproduce himself, and yet his spirit pervades the mental creation. Following the principle of correspondence, we are justified in considering that the all creates the universe mentally in a manner akin to the process whereby man creates mental images. And here is where the report of reason tallies precisely with the report of the Illumined, as shown by their teachings and writings. Such are the teachings of the wise men. Such was the teaching of Hermes. The all can create in no other way except mentally, without either using material and there is none to use, or else reproducing itself, which is also impossible. There is no escape from this conclusion of the reason, which, as we have said, agrees with the highest teachings of the Illumined. Just as you, student, may create a universe of your own in your mentality, so does the all create universes in its own mentality. But your universe is the mental creation of a finite mind, whereas that of the all is the creation of an infinite. The two are similar in kind, 
but infinitely different in degree, we shall examine more closely into the process of creation and manifestation as we proceed. But this is the point to fixture in your minds at this stage, the universe and all it contains is a mental creation of the all. Verily, indeed, all is mind. The all creates in its infinite mind countless universes, which exist for eons of time. And yet, to the all, the creation, development, decline, and death of a million universes is as the time of the twinkling of an eye. The infinite mind of the all is the womb of universes. The principle of gender, see lesson one and other lessons to follow, is manifested on all planes of life, material, mental, and spiritual. But, as we have said before, gender does not mean sex. Sex is merely a material manifestation of gender. Gender means relating to generation or creation. And wherever anything is generated or created on any plane, the principle of gender must be manifested. And this is true even in the creation of universes. Now, do not jump to the conclusion that we are teaching that there is a male and female God or creator. That idea is merely a distortion of the ancient teachings on the subject. The true teaching is that the all in itself is above gender, as it is above every other law, including those of space and time. It is the law from which the laws proceed, and it is not subject to them. But when the all manifests on the plane of generation or creation, then it acts according to law and principle. For it is moving on a lower plane of being, and consequently it manifests the principle of gender, in its masculine and feminine aspects on the mental plane, of course. This idea may seem startling to some of you who hear it for the first time, but you have all really passively accepted it in your everyday conceptions. You speak of the fatherhood of God and their motherhood of nature, of God the Divine Father, and nature the Universal Mother, and have thus instinctively acknowledged the principle of gender in the universe. Is this not so? But the hermetic teaching does not imply a real duality. The all is one. The two aspects are merely aspects of manifestation. The teaching is that the masculine principle manifested by the all stands, in a way, apart from the actual mental creation of the universe. It projects its will toward the feminine principle, which may be called nature whereupon the latter begins the actual work of the evolution of the universe, from simple centers of activity on to man, and then on and on still higher, all according to well-established and firmly enforced laws of nature. If you prefer the old figures of thought, you may think of the masculine principle as God, the Father, and of the feminine principle as nature, the universal mother, from whose womb all things have been born. This is more than a mere poetic figure of speech. It is an idea of the actual process of the creation of the universe. But also remember that the all is but one, 
and that in its infinite mind, the universe is generated, created, and exists. It may help you to get the proper idea if you will apply the law of correspondence to yourself and your own mind. You know that the part of you which you call I, in a sense, stands apart and witnesses the creation of mental images in your own mind, the part of your mind in which the mental generation is accomplished may be called the me in distinction from the I, which stands apart and witnesses and examines the thoughts, ideas, and images of the me. As above, so below. Remember, in the phenomena of one plane may be employed to solve the riddles of higher or lower planes. Is it any wonder that you, the child, feel that instinctive reverence for the all, which feeling we call religion, that respect and reverence for the father mind? Is it any wonder that when you consider the works and wonders of nature, you are overcome with a mighty feeling which has its roots away down in your inmost being? It is the mother mind that you are pressing close up to, like a babe to the breast. Do not make the mistake of supposing that the little world you see around you, the earth, which is a mere grain of dust in the universe, is the universe itself. There are millions upon millions of such worlds and greater, and there are millions of millions of such universes in existence within the infinite mind of the all. Even in our own little solar system, there are regions and planes of life far higher than ours and beings compared to which we earthbound mortals are as the slimy life forms that dwell on the ocean's bed when compared to man. There are beings with powers and attributes higher than man has ever dreamed of the gods possessing, and yet these beings were once as you, and still lower, and you will be even as they, and still higher, in time. For such is the destiny of man as reported by the Illumined, and death is not real, even in the relative sense, it is but birth to a new life, and you shall go on, and on, and on, to higher and still higher planes of life, for eons upon eons of time, the universe is your home, and you shall explore its farthest recesses before the end of time. You are dwelling in the infinite mind of the all, and your possibilities and opportunities are infinite, both in time and space. And at the end of the grand cycle of eons, when the all shall draw back into itself all of its creations, you will go gladly, for you will then be able to know the whole truth of being at one with the all. Such is the report of the Illumined, those who have advanced well along the path. And in the meantime, rest calm and serene. You are safe and protected by the infinite power of the father-mother mind. Within the father-mother mind, mortal children are at home. There is not one who is fatherless nor motherless in the universe. The Kybalion, Chapter 6 the Divine Paradox, the half-wise, 
recognizing the comparative unreality of the universe, imagine that they may defy its laws. Such are vain and presumptuous fools, and they are broken against the rocks and torn asunder by the elements by reason of their folly. The truly wise, knowing the nature of the universe, use law against laws, the higher against the lower, and by the art of alchemy, transmute that which is undesirable into that which is worthy, and thus triumph. Mastery consists not in abnormal dreams, visions, and fantastic imaginings or living, but in using the higher forces against the lower, escaping the pains of the lower planes by vibrating on the higher. Transmutation, not presumptuous denial, is the weapon of the master. This is the paradox of the universe, resulting from the principle of polarity, which manifests when the all begins to create. Hearken to it, for it points to the difference between half-wisdom and wisdom. While to the infinite all, the universe, its laws, its powers, its life, its phenomena, are as things witnessed in the state of meditation or dream, yet to all that is finite, the universe must be treated as real, and life, and action, and thought must be based thereupon accordingly, although with an ever-understanding of the higher truth, each according to its own plane and laws, where the all to imagine that the universe were indeed reality, then woe to the universe, for there would be then no escape from lower to higher, divine word, then would the universe become a fixity and progress would become impossible. And if man, owing to half-wisdom, acts and lives and thinks of the universe as merely a dream, akin to his own finite dreams, then indeed does it so become for him, and like a sleepwalker he stumbles ever around and around in a circle, making no progress and being forced into an awakening at last by his falling bruised and bleeding over the natural laws which he ignored. Keep your mind ever on the star, but let your eyes watch over your footsteps, lest you fall into the mire by reason of your upward gaze. Remember the divine paradox, that while the universe is not, still it is. Remember ever the two poles of truth, the absolute and the relative. Beware of half-truths. What Hermetists know as the law of paradox is an aspect of the principle of polarity. Hermetic writings are filled with references to the appearance of the paradox in the consideration of the problems of life and being. The teachers are constantly warning their students against the error of omitting the other side of any question, and their warnings are particularly directed to the problems of the absolute and the relative which perplex all students of philosophy, and which cause so many to think and act contrary to what is generally known as common sense. And we caution all students to be sure to grasp the divine paradox of the absolute and relative, lest they become entangled in the mire of the half-truth.
With this in view, this particular lesson has been written. Read it carefully. The first thought that comes to thinking man after he realizes the truth that the universe is a mental creation of the all is that the universe and all that it contains is a mere illusion, an unreality against which idea his instincts revolt. But this, like all other great truths, must be considered both from the absolute and the relative points of view. From the absolute viewpoint, of course, the universe is in the nature of an illusion, a dream, a phantasmagoria as compared to the all in itself. We recognize this even in our ordinary view, for we speak of the word as a fleeting show that comes and goes, is born and dies for the element of impermanence and change finiteness and unsubstantiality must ever be connected with the idea of a created universe when it is contrasted with the idea of the all. No matter what may be our beliefs concerning the nature of both, philosopher, metaphysician, scientist, and theologian all agree upon this idea, and the thought is found in all forms of philosophical thought and religious conceptions as well as in the theories of the respective schools of metaphysics and theology. So, the hermetic teachings do not preach the unsubstantiality of the universe in any stronger terms than those more familiar to you, although their presentation of the subject may seem somewhat more startling. Anything that has a beginning and an ending must be, in a sense, unreal and untrue and the universe comes under the rule in all schools of thought. For the absolute point of view, there is nothing real except the all. No matter what terms we may use in thinking of or discussing the subject, whether the universe be created of matter or whether it be a mental creation in the mind of the all, it is unsubstantial, non-enduring, a thing of time, space, and change. We want you to realize this fact thoroughly before you pass judgment on the hermetic conception of the mental nature of the universe. Think over any and all of the other conceptions and see whether this be not true of them. But the absolute point of view shows merely one side of the picture. The other side is the relative one. Absolute truth has been defined as things as the mind of God knows them, while relative truth is things as the highest reason of man understands them. And so while to the all, the universe must be unreal and illusionary, a mere dream or result of meditation, nevertheless, to the finite minds forming a part of the universe and viewing it through mortal faculties, the universe is very real indeed and must be so considered. In recognizing the absolute view, we must not make the mistake of ignoring or denying the facts and phenomena of the universe as they present themselves to our mortal faculties. We are not the all, remember. To take familiar illustrations, we all recognize the fact that matter exists to our senses. We will fare badly if we do not, and yet even our finite minds understand the scientific dictum 
that there is no such thing as matter from a scientific point of view. That which we call matter is held to be merely an aggregation of atoms, which atoms themselves are merely a grouping of units of force called electrons or eons vibrating in, in a constant circular motion. We kick a stone and we feel the impact. It seems to be real, notwithstanding that we know it to be merely what we have stated above. But remember that our foot, which feels the impact by means of our brains, is likewise matter, so constituted of electrons, and for that matter, so are our brains. And, at the best, if it were not by reason of our mind, we would not know the foot or stone at all. Then again, the ideal of the artist or sculptor which he is endeavoring to reproduce in stone or on canvas, seems very real to him. So do the characters in the mind of the author or dramatist, which he seeks to express so that others may recognize them. And if this be true in the case of our finite minds, we must be the degree of reality in the mental images created in the mind of the infinite. Oh, friends, to mortals this universe of mentality is very real indeed. It is the only one we can ever know, though we rise from plane to plane, higher and higher in it. To know it otherwise, by actual experience, we must be the all itself. It is true that the higher we rise in the scale, the nearer to the mind of the Father we reach, the more apparent becomes the illusory nature of finite things. But not until the all finally withdraws us into itself does the vision actually vanish. So, we need not dwell upon the feature of illusion. Rather, let us, recognizing the real nature of the universe, seek to understand its mental laws and endeavor to use them to the best effect in our upward progress through life as we travel from plane to plane of being. The laws of the universe are none the less iron laws because of the mental nature all except the all are bound by them what is in the infinite mind of the all is real in a degree second only to that reality itself which is vested in the nature of the all so do not feel insecure or afraid we are all held firmly in the infinite mind of the all and there is not to hurt us or for us to fear. There is no power outside of the all to affect us, so we may rest calm and secure. There is a world of comfort and security in this realization when once attained. Then, calm and peaceful, do we sleep, rocked in the cradle of the deep, resting safely on the bosom of the ocean of infinite mind, which is the all. In the all, indeed, do we live and move and have our being. Matter is none the less matter to us. While we dwell on the plane of matter, although we know it to be merely an aggregation of electrons or particles of force vibrating rapidly and gyrating around each other in the formations of atoms, the atoms in turn vibrating and gyrating, forming molecules, which latter in turn form larger masses of matter. Nor does matter become less matter, 
when we follow the inquiry still further and learn from the hermetic teachings that the force of which the electrons are but units is merely a manifestation of the mind of the all and like all else in the universe is purely mental in its nature while on the plane of matter we must recognize its phenomena we may control matter as all masters of higher or lesser degree do but we do so by applying the higher forces we commit a folly when we attempt to deny the existence of matter in the relative aspect we may deny its mastery over us and rightly so but we should not attempt to ignore it in its relative aspect at least so long as we dwell upon its plane nor do the laws of nature become less constant or effective when we know them likewise to be merely mental creations they are in full effect on the various planes we overcome the lower laws by applying still higher ones and in this way only but we cannot escape law or rise above it entirely nothing but the all can escape law and that because the all is law itself from which all laws emerge the most advanced masters may acquire the powers usually attributed to the gods of men and there are countless ranks of being in the great hierarchy of life whose being and power transcends even that of the highest masters among men to a degree unthinkable by mortals but even the highest master and the highest being must bow to the law and be as nothing in the eye of the all so that if even these highest beings whose powers exceed even those attributed by men to their gods if even these are bound by and are subservient to law then imagine the presumption of mortal man of our race and grade when he dares to consider the laws of nature as unreal visionary and illusory because he happens to be able to grasp the truth that the laws are mental in nature and simply mental creations of the all those laws which the all intends to be governing laws are not to be defied or argued away so long as the universe endures will they endure for the universe exists by virtue of these laws which form its framework and which hold it together the hermetic principle of mentalism while explaining the true nature of the universe upon the principle that all is mental does not change the scientific conceptions of the universe life or evolution in fact science merely corroborates the hermetic teachings the latter merely teaches that the nature of the universe is mental while modern science has taught that it is material or of late that it is energy at the last analysis the hermetic teachings have no fault to find with herbert spencer's basic principle which postulates the existence of an infinite and eternal energy from which all things proceed in fact the hermetics recognize in spencer's philosophy the highest outside statement of the workings of the natural laws that has ever been promulgated and they believe spencer to have been a reincarnation of an ancient philosopher who dwelt in ancient egypt thousands of years ago and who later incarnated as heraclitus 
the Grecian philosopher who lived in 500 BC, and they regard his statement of the infinite and eternal energy as directly in the line of the Hermetic teachings, always with the addition of their own doctrine that his energy is the energy of the mind of the all. With the master key of the Hermetic philosophy, the student of Spencer will be able to unlock many doors of the inner philosophical conceptions of the great English philosopher, whose work shows the result of the preparation of his previous incarnations. His teachings regarding evolution and rhythm are in almost perfect agreement with the Hermetic teachings regarding the principle of rhythm. So the student of the Hermetics need not lay aside any of his cherished scientific views regarding the universe. All he is asked to do is to grasp the underlying principle of the all is mind. The universe is mental held in the mind of the all. He will find that the other six of the seven principles will fit into his scientific knowledge and will serve to bring out obscure points and to throw light in dark corners. This is not to be wondered at. When we realize the influence of the hermetic thought on the early philosophers of Greece, upon whose foundations of thought the theories of modern science largely rest, the acceptance of the first hermetic principle, mentalism, is the only great point of difference between modern science and hermetic students. And science is gradually moving toward the hermetic position, and it's groping in the dark for a way out of the labyrinth into which it has wandered in its search for reality. The purpose of this lesson is to impress upon the minds of our students the fact that, to all intents and purposes, the universe and its laws and its phenomena are just as real so far as man is concerned, as they would be under the hypothesis of materialism or energism. Under any hypothesis, the universe in its outer aspect is changing, ever-flowing and transitory, and therefore devoid of substantiality and reality. But note the other pole of the truth. Under any of the same hypothesis, we are compelled to act and live as if the fleeting things were real and substantial, with this difference always between the various hypotheses that under the old views mental power was ignored as a natural force, while under mentalism it becomes the greatest natural force. And this one difference revolutionizes life to those who understand the principle and its resulting laws and practice. So finally, students all grasp the advantage of mentalism and learn to know, use, and apply the laws resulting therefrom, but do not yield to the temptation which, as the Kybalian states, overcomes the half-wise, and which causes them to be hypnotized by the apparent unreality of things, the consequence being that they wander about like dream people, dwelling in a world of dreams, ignoring the practical work and life of man, the end being that they are broken against the rocks and torn asunder by the elements by reason of their folly. Rather, follow the example of the wise, which the same authority states, use law against laws, the higher against the lower, 
and by the art of alchemy transmute that which is undesirable into that which is worthy, and thus triumph. Following the authority, let us avoid the half-wisdom, which is folly, which ignores the truth that mastery consists not in abnormal dreams, visions, and fantastic imaginings or living, but in using the higher forces against the lower, escaping the pains of the lower planes by vibrating on the higher. Remember always, student, that transmutation, not presumptuous denial, is the weapon of the master. The above quotations are from the Kybalion and are worthy of being committed to memory by the student. We do not live in a world of dreams, but in a universe which, while relative, is real so far as our lives and actions are concerned. Our business in the universe is not to deny its existence, but to live, using the laws to rise from lower to higher, living on, doing the best that we can under the circumstances arising each day, and living so far as is possible to our highest ideals and ideas. The true meaning of life is not known to men on this plane, if indeed to any, but the highest authorities and our, our own intuitions teach us that we will make no mistake in living up to the best that is in us, so far as is possible in realizing the universal tendency in the same direction in spite of apparent evidences to the contrary. We are all on the path, and the road leads upward ever with frequent resting places. Read the message of the Kybalion and follow the example of the wise, avoiding the mistake of the half-wise who perish by reason of their folly. The Kybalion, Chapter 7, The All in All While all is in the all, it is equally true that the all is in all. To him who truly understands this truth hath come great knowledge. How often have the majority of people heard repeated the statement that their deity, called by many names, was all in all? And how little have they suspected the inner occult truth concealed by these carelessly uttered words? The commonly used expression is a survival of the ancient hermetic maxim quoted above. As the Kybalion says, To him who truly understands this truth hath come great knowledge. And this being so, let us seek this truth, the understanding of which means so much. In this statement of truth, this hermetic maxim is concealed one of the greatest philosophical scientific, and religious truths. We have given you the hermetic teaching regarding the mental nature of the universe, the truth that the universe is mental, held in the mind of the all. As the Kybalion says in the passage quoted above, all is in the all. But note also the co-related statement that it is equally true that the all is in all. This apparently contradictory statement is reconcilable under the law of paradox. It is, moreover, 
an exact hermetic statement of the relations existing between the all and its mental universe. We have seen how all is in the all. Now, let us examine the other aspect of the subject. The hermetic teachings are to the effect that the all is imminent in remaining within, inherent, abiding within its universe and in every part, particle, unit, or combination within the universe. This statement is usually illustrated by the teachers by a reference to the principle of correspondence. The teacher instructs the student to form a mental image of something, a person, an idea, something having a mental form. The favorite example being that of the author or dramatist forming an idea of his characters, or a painter or sculptor forming an image of an ideal that he wishes to express by his art. In each case, the student will find that while the image has its existence and being solely within his own mind, yet he, the student, author, dramatist, painter, or sculptor, is, in a sense, imminent in remaining within or abiding within the mental image also. In other words, the entire virtue, life, spirit of reality in the mental image is derived from the imminent mind of the thinker. Consider this for a moment until the idea is grasped. To take a modern example, let us say that Othello, Iago, Hamlet, Lear, and Richard III existed merely in the mind of Shakespeare at the time of their conception or creation, and yet Shakespeare also existed within each of these characters, giving them their vitality, spirit, and action. Whose is the spirit of the characters that we know as Micawber, Oliver Twist, Uriah Heep? Is it Dickens? or have each of these characters a personal spirit, independent of their creator? Have the Venus of Medici, the Sistine Madonna, the Apollo Belvedere, spirits and reality of their own, or do they represent the spiritual and mental power of their creators? The law of paradox explains that both propositions are true, viewed from the proper viewpoints. Micawber is both Micawber and yet Dickens. And again, while Macabre may be said to be Dickens, yet Dickens is not identical with Macabre. Man, like Macabre, may exclaim, the spirit of my creator is inherent within me, and yet I am not he. How different this from the shocking half-truth so vociferously announced by certain of the half-wise who fill the air with the raucous cries of, I am God. Imagine poor Micawber or the sneaky Uriah Heep crying, I am Dickens, or some of the lowly clods in one of Shakespeare's plays, grand eloquently announcing that I am Shakespeare. The all is in the earthworm, and yet the earthworm is far from being the all, and still the wonder remains that though the earthworm exists merely as a lowly thing 
created and having its being solely within the mind of the all. Yet the all is imminent in the earthworm and in the particles that go to make up the earthworm. Can there be any greater mystery than this of all in the all and the all in all? The student will, of course, realize that the illustrations given above are necessarily imperfect and inadequate, for they represent the creation of mental images in finite minds, while the universe is a creation of infinite mind, and the difference between the two poles separates them, and yet it is merely a matter of degree. The same principle is in operation. The principle of correspondence manifests in each. As above, so below. As below, so above. And in the degree that man realizes the existence of the indwelling spirit immanent within his being, so will he rise in the spiritual scale of life. This is what spiritual development means, the recognition, realization, and manifestation of the spirit within us. Try to remember this last definition, that of spiritual development. It contains the truth of true religion. There are many planes of being, many subplanes of life, many degrees of existence in the universe, and all depend upon the advancement of beings in the scale, of which scale the lowest point is the grossest matter, the highest being separated only by the thinnest division from the spirit of the all, and upward and onward along this scale of life everything is moving. All are on the path whose end is the all. All progress is a returning home. All is upward and onward. In spite of all seemingly contradictory appearances, such is the message of the Illumined. The Hermetic teachings concerning the process of the mental creation of the universe are that at the beginning of the creative cycle, the all, in its aspect of being, projects its will toward its aspect of becoming, and the process of creation begins. It is taught that the process consists of the lowering of vibration until a very low degree of vibratory energy is reached, at which point the grossest possible form of matter is manifested. This process is called the stage of involution, in which the all becomes involved or wrapped up in its creation. This process is believed by the Hermetists to have a correspondence to the mental process of an artist, writer, or inventor who becomes so wrapped up in his mental creation as to almost forget his own existence and who, for the time being, almost lives in his creation. If, instead of wrapped, we use the word wrapped, perhaps we will give a better idea of what is meant. This involuntary stage of creation is sometimes called the outpouring of the divine energy, just as the evolutionary state is called the indrawing. The extreme pole of the creative process is considered to be the furthest removed from the all. While the beginning of the evolutionary stage is regarded as the beginning of the return swing of the pendulum of rhythm, a coming home, 
idea being held in all of the hermetic teachings. The teachings are that during the outpouring, the vibrations become lower and lower until finally the urge ceases and the return swing begins. But there is this difference that while in the outpouring, the creative forces manifest compactly and as a whole, yet from the beginning of the evolutionary or in drawing stage, there is manifested the law of individualization. That is the tendency to separate into units of force so that finally that which left the all as unindividualized energy returns to its source as countless highly developed units of life having risen higher and higher in the scale by means of physical, mental, and spiritual evolution. The ancient hermetists used the word meditation in describing the process of the mental creation of the universe in the mind of the all. The word contemplation also being frequently employed, but the idea intended seems to be that of the employment of the divine attention. Attention is a word derived from the Latin root meaning to reach out, to stretch out. And so the act of attention is really a mental reaching out extension of mental energy so that the underlying idea is readily understood when we examine into the real meaning of attention. The hermetic teachings regarding the process of evolution are that the all having meditated upon the beginning of the creation, having thus established the material foundations of the universe, having thought it into existence, then gradually awakens or rouses from its meditation and in so doing starts into manifestation the process of evolution on the material, mental, and spiritual planes, successively and in order. Thus, the upward movement begins and all begins to move spiritward. Matter becomes less gross. The units spring into being. The combinations begin to form. Life appears and manifests in higher and higher forms, and mind becomes more and more in evidence, the vibrations constantly becoming higher. In short, the entire process of evolution in all of its phases begins and proceeds according to the established laws of the in-drawing process. All of this occupies eons upon eons of man's time, each eon containing countless millions of years, but yet the Illumined informed us that the entire creation, including involution and evolution of a universe, is but as the twinkle of the eye to the all. At the end of countless cycles of eons of time, the all withdraws its attention, its contemplation and meditation of the universe, for the great work is finished, and all is withdrawn into the all from which it emerged. But mystery of mysteries, the spirit of each soul is not annihilated, but is infinitely expanded. The created and the creator are merged. Such is the report of the Illumined. The above illustration 
of the meditation and subsequent awakening from meditation of the all is, of course, but an attempt of the teachers to describe the infinite process by a finite example. And yet, as below, so above, the difference is merely in degree. And just as the all arouses itself from the meditation upon the universe, so does man in time seize from manifesting upon the material plane and withdraws himself more and more into the indwelling spirit, which is indeed the divine ego. There is one more matter of which we desire to speak in this lesson, and that comes very near to an invasion of the metaphysical field of speculation, although our purpose is merely to show the futility of such speculation. We allude to the question which inevitably comes to the mind of all thinkers who have ventured to seek the truth. The question is, why does the all create universes? The question may be asked in different forms, but the above is the gist of the inquiry. Men have striven hard to answer this question, but still there is no answer worthy of the name. Some have imagined that the all had something to gain by it, but this is absurd. For what could the all gain that it did not already possess? Others have sought the answer in the idea that the all wished something to love, and others that it created for pleasure or amusement or because it was lonely or to manifest its power. All puerile explanations and ideas belonging to the childish period of thought. Others have sought to explain the mystery by assuming that the all found itself compelled to create by reason of its own internal nature, its creative instinct. This idea is in advance of the others, but its weak point lies in the idea of the all being compelled by anything, internal or external. If its internal nature or creative instinct compelled it to do anything, then the internal nature or creative instinct would be the absolute instead of the all. And so accordingly, that part of the proposition fails. And yet the all does create and manifest and seems to find some kind of satisfaction in so doing. And it is difficult to escape the conclusion that in some infinite degree, it must have what would correspond to an inner nature or creative instinct in man with correspondingly infinite desire and will. It could not act unless it willed to act, and it would not will to act unless it desired to act, and it would not desire to act unless it obtained some satisfaction thereby, and all of these things would belong to an inner nature, and might be postulated as existing according to the law of correspondence. But still, we prefer to think of the all as acting entirely free from any influence, internal as well as external. That is the problem which lies at the root of difficulty, and the difficulty that lies at the root of the problem. Strictly speaking, there cannot be said to be any reason whatsoever for the all to act, for a reason implies a cause, and the all is above cause and effect, except when it wills to become a cause, at which time the principle is set into motion. So, you see, 
The matter is unthinkable, just as the all is unknowable. Just as we say the all merely is, so we are compelled to say that the all acts because it acts. At the last, the all is all reason in itself, all law in itself, all action in itself, and it may be said truthfully that the all is its own reason, its own law, its own act, or still further that the all is reason, its act is law, are one, all being names for the same thing. In the opinion of those who are giving you these present lessons, the answer is locked up in inner self of the all, along with its secret of being. The law of correspondence, in our opinion, reaches only to that aspect of the all, which may be spoken of as the aspect of becoming. Back of that aspect is the aspect of being, in which all laws are lost in law. All principles merge into principle and the all. Principle and being are identical, one and the same. Therefore, metaphysical speculation on this point is futile. We go into the matter here merely to show that we recognize the question and also the absurdity of the ordinary answers of metaphysics and theology. In conclusion, it may be of interest to our students to learn that while some of the ancient and modern hermetic teachers have rather inclined in the direction of applying the principle of correspondence to the question, with the result of the inner nature conclusion, still the legends have it that Hermes the Great, when asked this question by his advanced students, answered them by pressing his lips tightly together and saying not a word, indicating that there was no answer. But then he may have intended to apply the axiom of his philosophy that the lips of wisdom are closed, except to the ears of understanding, believing that even his advanced students did not possess the understanding which entitled them to the teaching. At any rate, if Hermes possessed the secret, he failed to impart it. And so far as the world is concerned, the lips of Hermes are closed regarding it. And where the great Hermes hesitated to speak, what mortal may dare to teach? But remember that whatever be the answer to this problem, if indeed there be an answer, the truth remains that while all is in the all, it is equally true that the all is in all. The teaching on this point is emphatic, and we may add the concluding words of the quotation, To him who truly understands this truth hath come great knowledge. The Kybalion, Chapter 8, The Plains of Correspondence As above, so below, as below, so above. The great second hermetic principle embodies the truth that there is a harmony agreement and correspondence between the several planes of manifestation, life, and being. This truth is a truth because all that is included in the universe emanates from the same source and the same laws 
principles and characteristics apply to each unit or combination of units of activity as each manifests its own phenomena upon its own plane. For the purpose of convenience of thought and study, the Hermetic philosophy considers that the universe may be divided into three great classes of phenomena known as the three great planes, namely, one, the great physical plane, two, the great mental plane, three, the great spiritual plane. These divisions are more or less artificial and arbitrary, for the truth is that all of the three divisions are but ascending degrees of the great scale of life, the lowest point of which is undifferentiated matter, and the highest point that of spirit. And, moreover, the different planes shade into each other, so that no hard and fast division may be made between the higher phenomena of the physical and the lower of the mental, or between the higher of the mental and the lower of the spiritual. In short, the three great planes may be regarded as three great groups of degrees of life manifestation. While the purpose of this little book do not allow us to enter into an extended discussion of or explanation of the subject of these different planes, still we think it well to give a general description of the same at this point. At the beginning, we may as well consider the question so often asked by the neophyte, who desires to be informed regarding the meaning of the word plane, which term has been very freely used and very poorly explained in many recent works upon the subject of occultism. The question is generally about as follows. Is a plane a place having dimensions, or is it merely a condition or state? We answer, no, not a place, nor ordinary dimension of space, and yet more than a state or condition. It may be considered as a state or condition, and yet the state or condition is a degree of dimension, in a scale subject to measurement. Somewhat paradoxical, is it not? But let us examine the matter. A dimension, you know, is a measure in a straight line relating to measure, etc. The ordinary dimensions of space are length, breadth, and height, or perhaps length, breadth, height, thickness, or circumference. But there is another dimension of created things, or measure in a straight line, known to occultists and to scientists as well, although the latter have not as yet applied the term dimension to it. And this new dimension, which, by the way, is the much speculated about fourth dimension, is the standard used in determining the degrees or planes. This fourth dimension may be called the dimension of vibration. It is a fact well known to modern science as well as to the hermetists who have embodied the truth in their third hermetic principle that everything is in motion, everything vibrates, nothing is at rest. From the highest manifestation to the lowest, everything and all things vibrate. Not only do they vibrate at different rates of motion, but as in different directions and in a different manner. 
the degrees of the rate of vibrations constitute the degrees of measurement on the scale of vibrations. In other words, the degrees of the fourth dimension. And these degrees form what occultists call planes. The higher the degree of rate of vibration, the higher the plane, and the higher the manifestation of life occupying that plane. So that while a plane is not a place, nor yet a state or condition, yet it possesses qualities common to both. We shall have more to say regarding the subject of the scale of vibrations in our next lessons, in which we shall consider the hermetic principle of vibration. You will kindly remember, however, that the three great planes are not actual divisions of the phenomena of the universe, but merely arbitrary terms used by the hermetists in order to aid in the thought and study of the various degrees and forms of universal activity and life. The atom of matter, the unit of force, the mind of man, and the being of the archangel are all but degrees in one scale and all fundamentally the same. The difference between solely a matter of degree and rate of vibration, all are creations of the all and have their existence solely within the infinite mind of the all. The Hermetists subdivide each of the three great planes into seven minor planes, and each of these latter are also subdivided into seven subplanes, all divisions being more or less arbitrary, shading into each other and adopted merely for convenience of scientific study and thought. The great physical plane and its seven minor planes is that division of the phenomena of the universe which includes all that relates to physics or material things, forces and manifestations. It includes all forms of that which we call matter and all forms of that which we call energy or force. But you must remember that the hermetic philosophy does not recognize matter as a thing in itself or as having a separate existence even in the mind of the all. The teachings are that matter is but a form of energy that is, energy at a low rate of vibrations of a certain kind. And accordingly, the hermetists classify matter under the head of energy and giving it three of the seven minor planes of the great physical plane. These seven minor physical planes are as follows. 1. The plane of matter, A. 2. The plane of matter, B. 3. The plane of matter, C. 4. The plane of ethereal substance. 5. The plane of energy, A. 6. The plane of energy, B. 7. The plane of energy, C. The plane of matter A comprises the forms of matter and its forms of solids, liquids, and gases, as generally recognized by the textbooks of physics. The plane of matter B comprises certain higher and more subtle forms of matter of the existence of which modern science is but now recognizing the phenomena of radiant matter in its phases of radium belonging to the lower subdivision of this minor plane. The plane of matter C comprises forms of the most subtle and tenuous matter 
the existence of which is not suspected by ordinary scientists. The plane of ethereal substance comprises that which science speaks of as the ether, a substance of extreme tenuity in it elasticity pervading all universal space and acting as a medium for the transmission of waves and energy such as light, heat, electricity, etc. This ethereal substance forms a connecting link between matter, so-called, and energy, and partakes of the nature of each. The hermetic teachings, however, instruct that this plane has sub seven subdivisions, as have all of the minor planes, and that, in fact, there are seven ethers instead of but one. Next, above the plane of ethereal substance comes the plane of energy A, which comprises the ordinary forms of energy known to science, its seven subplanes being, respectively, heat, light, magnetism, electricity, and attraction, including gravitation, cohesion, chemical affinity, etc., and several other forms of energy indicated by scientific experiments, but not as yet named or classified. The plane of energy B comprises seven subplanes of higher forms of energy not as yet discovered by science, but which have been called nature's finer forces, and which are called into operation in manifestations of certain forms of mental phenomena, and by which such phenomena becomes possible. The plane of energy C comprises seven subplanes of energy so highly organized that it bears many of the characteristics of life, but which is not recognized by the minds of men on the ordinary plane of development, being available for the use on beings of the spiritual plane alone. Such energy is unthinkable to ordinary man and may be considered almost as the divine power. The beings employing the same are as gods compared even to the highest human types known to us. The great mental plane comprises those forms of living things known to us in ordinary life, as well as certain other forms not so well known except to the occultists. The classification of the seven minor mental planes is more or less satisfactory and arbitrary, unless accompanied by elaborate explanations which are foreign to the purpose of this particular work, but we may as well mention them. They are as follows. 1. The plane of mineral mind. 2. The plane of elemental mind. A. 3. The plane of plant mind. 4. The plane of elemental mind. B. 5. The plane of animal mind. 6. The plane of elemental mind. C. 7. The plane of human mind. The plane of mineral mind comprises the states or conditions of the units or entities or groups and combinations of the same, which animate the forms known to us as minerals, chemicals, etc. These entities must not be confounded with the molecules, atoms, and corpuscles themselves, the latter being merely the material bodies or forms of these entities, just as a man's body is but his material form and not himself.
These entities may be called souls in one sense and are living beings of a low degree of development, life, and mind, just a little more than the units of living energy which comprise the higher subdivisions of the highest physical plane. The average mind does not generally attribute the possession of mind, soul, or life to the mineral kingdom, but all occultists recognize the existence of the same and modern science is rapidly moving forward to the point of the view of the hermetic in this respect. The molecules, atoms, and corpuscles have their loves and hates, likes and dislikes, attractions and repulsions, affinities and non-affinities, etc., and some of the more daring of modern scientific minds have expressed the opinion that the desire and will, emotions, and feelings of the atoms differ only in degree from those of men. We have no time or space to argue this matter here. All occultists know it to be a fact, and others are referred to some of the more recent scientific works for outside corroboration. There are the usual seven subdivisions to this plane. The plane of elemental mind A comprises the state or condition and degree of mental and vital development of a class of entities unknown to the average man, but recognized to occultists. They are invisible to the ordinary senses of man, but nevertheless exist and play their part of the drama of the universe. Their degree of intelligence is between that of the mineral and chemical entities on the one hand and of the entities of the plant kingdom on the other. There are seven subdivisions to this plane also. The plane of plant mind in its seven subdivisions comprises the states or conditions of the entities comprising the kingdoms of the plant world. The vital and mental phenomena of which is fairly well understood by the average intelligent person. Many new and interesting scientific works regarding mind and life in plants have been published during the last decade. Plants have life, mind, and souls, as well as have the animals, man, and superman. The plane of elemental mind B in its seven subdivisions comprises the states and conditions of a higher form of elemental or unseen entities playing their part in the general work of the universe, the mind and life of which form a part of the scale between the plane of the plant mind and the plane of the animal mind, the entities partaking of the nature of both. The plane of animal mind in its seven subdivisions comprises the states and conditions of the entities, beings, or souls, animating the animal forms of life, familiar to us all. It is not necessary to go into details regarding this kingdom or plane of life, for the animal world is as familiar to us as is our own. The plane of elemental mind C, in its seven subdivisions, comprises those entities or beings invisible as are all such elemental forms, which partake of the nature of both animal and human life in a degree and in certain combinations. The highest forms 
are semi-human in intelligence, the plane of human mind and its seven subdivisions comprises those manifestations of life and mentality which are common to man in his various grades, degrees, and divisions. In this connection, we wish to point out the fact that the average man of today occupies but the fourth subdivision of the plane of human mind, and only the most intelligent have crossed the borders of the fifth subdivision. It has taken the race millions of years to reach this stage, and it will take many more years for the race to move on to the sixth and seventh subdivisions and beyond. But remember that there have been races before us which have passed through these degrees and then on to higher planes. Our own race is the fifth, with stragglers from the fourth, which has set foot upon the path. And then there are a few advanced souls of our own race who have outstripped the masses and who have passed on to the sixth and seventh subdivision, and some few being still further on. The man of the sixth subdivision will be the superman. He of the seventh will be the overman. In our consideration of the seven minor mental planes, we have merely referred to the three elementary planes in a general way. We do not wish to go into this subject in detail in this work, for it does not belong to this part of the general philosophy and teachings. But we may say this much, in order to give you a little clearer idea of the relations of these planes to the more familiar ones, the elementary planes bear the same relation to the planes of mineral, plant, animal, and human mentality and life that the black keys on the piano do to the white keys. The white keys are sufficient to produce music, but there are certain scales, melodies, and harmonies in which the black keys play their part, in which their presence is necessary. They are also necessary as connecting links of soul condition, entity states, etc. Between the several other planes, certain forms of development being attained therein, this last fact giving to the reader who can read between the lines, a new light upon the processes of evolution, and a new key to the secret door of the leaps of life between kingdom and kingdom. The great kingdoms of elementals are fully recognized by all occultists, and the esoteric writings are full of mention of them. The readers of Boer's Zanoni and similar tales will recognize the entities inhabiting these planes of life, passing on from the great mental plane to the great spiritual plane. What shall we say? How can we explain these higher states of being, life, and mind to minds as yet unable to grasp and understand the higher subdivisions of the plane of human mind. The task is impossible. We can speak only in the most general terms. How may light be described to a man born blind? How sugar to a man who has never tasted anything sweet? How harmony to one born deaf? All that we can say is that the sever minor planes of the great spiritual plane, each minor plane having its seven subdivisions, comprise beings possessing life, mind, and form as far above that of man today 
as the latter is above the earthworm, mineral, or even certain forms of energy or matter. The life of these beings so far transcends ours, that we cannot even think of the details of the same. Their minds so far transcend ours, that to them we scarcely seem to think, and our mental processes seem almost akin to material processes. The matter of which their forms are composed is of the highest planes of matter. Nay, some are even said to be clothed in pure energy. What may be said of such beings? On the seven minor planes of the great spiritual plane exist beings of whom we may speak as angels, archangels, demigods. On the lower minor planes dwell those great souls whom we call masters and adepts. Above them come the great hierarchies of the angelic hosts, unthinkable to man, and above those come those who may without irreverence be called the gods. So high in the scale of being are they, their being, intelligence, and power, being akin to those attributed by the races of men to their conceptions of deity. These beings are beyond even the highest flights of the human imagination. The word divine being the only one applicable to them. Many of these beings, as well as the angelic host, take the greatest interest in the affairs of the universe and play an important part in its affairs. These unseen divinities and angelic helpers extend their influence freely and powerfully in the process of evolution and cosmic progress. Their occasional intervention and assistance in human affairs have led to the many legends, beliefs, religions, and traditions of the race, past and present. They have superimposed their knowledge and power upon the world again and again, all under the law of the all, of course. But yet, even the highest of these advanced beings exist merely as creations of and in the mind of the all, and are subject to the cosmic processes and universal laws. They are still mortal. We may call them gods if we like, but still, they are but the elder brethren of the race, the advanced souls who have outstripped their brethren and who have foregone the ecstasy of absorption by the all in order to help the race on its upward journey along the path. But they belong to the universe and are subject to its conditions. They are mortal, and their plane is below that of absolute spirit. Only the most advanced hermetists are able to grasp the inner teachings regarding the state of existence and the powers manifested on the spiritual planes. The phenomena is so much higher than that of the mental planes that a confusion of ideas would surely result from an attempt to describe the same. Only those whose minds have been carefully trained along the lines of the hermetic philosophy for years, yes, those who have brought with them from other incarnations the knowledge acquired previously, can comprehend just what is meant by the teaching regarding these spiritual planes. And much of these inner teachings is held by the hermetists as being too sacred, important, and even dangerous for general public dissemination. The intelligent student may recognize what we mean by this when we state that the meaning of spirit 
as used by the Hermetists is akin to living power, animated force, inner essence, essence of life, etc., which meaning must not be confounded with the usually and commonly employed in connection with the term religious, ecclesiastical, spiritual, ethereal, holy, etc., etc. To occultists, the word spirit is used in the sense of the animating principle, carrying with it the idea of power, living energy, mystic force, etc. And occultists know that that which is known to them as spiritual power may be employed for evil as well as good ends in accordance with the principle of polarity, a fact which has been recognized by the majority of religions in their conceptions of Satan, Beelzebub, the devil, Lucifer, fallen angels, etc. And so the knowledge regarding these planes has been kept in the holy of holies in all of esoteric fraternities and occult orders in the secret chamber of the temple. But this may be said here, that those who have attained high spiritual powers and have misused them have a terrible fate in store for them, and the swing of the pendulum of rhythm will inevitably swing them back to the furthest extreme of material existence, from which point they must retrace their steps spiritward along the weary rounds of the path, but always with the added torture of having always with them a lingering memory of the heights from which they fell owing to their evil actions. The legends of the fallen angels have a basis in actual facts, as all advanced occultists know. The striving for selfish power on the spiritual planes inevitably results in the selfish soul losing its spiritual balance and falling back as far as it had previously risen. But to even such a soul, the opportunity of a return is given, and such souls make the return journey, paying the terrible penalty according to the invariable law. In conclusion, we would again remind you that according to the principle of correspondence, which embodies the truth, as above, so below, as below, so above, all of the seven hermetic principles are in full operation on all of the many planes, physical, mental, and spiritual. The principle of mental substance, of course, applies to all planes, for all are held in the mind of the all. The principle of correspondence manifests in all, for there is a correspondence, harmony, and agreement between the several planes. The principle of vibration manifests on all planes. In fact, the very differences that go to make the planes arise from vibration, as we have explained. The principle of polarity manifests on each plane, the extremes of the poles being apparently opposite and contradictory. The principle of rhythm manifests on each plane, the movement of the phenomena having its ebb and flow, rise and fall, incoming and outgoing. The principle of cause and effect manifests on each plane, every effect having its cause and every cause having its effect. The principle of gender manifests on each plane, the creative energy being always manifest and operating along the lines of its masculine and feminine aspects.
as above, so below, as below, so above. This centuries-old hermetic axiom embodies one of the great principles of universal phenomena. As we proceed with our consideration of the remaining principles, we will see even more clearly the truth of the universal nature of this great principle of correspondence.